Let us hear then God's word from Romans 2, beginning in verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a break of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Amen. Well, as we begin here today, some of us are teachers. That is our profession, or it has been at some point in time, or possibly will be for us. Uh, And yet all of us teach in some capacity. As parents, obviously, we teach our children or uh, even grandchildren. And uh, this is kind of a a natural thing, isn't it? We teach one another. God has gifted us in different ways, and there are certain things, certain gifts and abilities that we have that make us more knowledgeable and better in some areas than somebody else, and it's natural for us to do this. Now, with this briefly in mind, we come here now to these next couple verses in Romans 2. And as I did last time, I want to do so again here today, and that is, let's focus on what Paul is saying here in these few verses, and kind of leave the broader contextual point to the side, to the background, and we'll return to what he is driving at, Lord willing, next time. But since I'm doing that, let me remind us of the broader context. Since chapter 1, verse 18... Paul has explained how all of us are sinners and worthy of judgment. And though it is true, chapter 1 does speak specifically about the Gentile, those words of Paul also apply to the the Jew and even to us. Because all of us suppress the truth about God in some way or another, even as believers, all of us have idols that we hold on to. And so God, therefore, hands us over to various sexual and social sins as a consequence for our sin against him. So then in chapter 2, he then says, there are some people who are not as sinful as in chapter 1. There are some who, can you say, do not receive as much handing over to sin as others. But what often happens then, of course, is they think they're a pretty good person. 
And so they boast in themselves and they become critical of others and think that they are better than. But Paul says, this is only by God's grace. And it's also because they have changed God's standard, lowering it to make themselves feel superior. But beginning in verse 6, then Paul says clearly that God's standard remains. It is the same for everyone. For Jew and Gentile, for the Old Testament and the New Testament has not changed. God's standard he has given, and he requires perfect, complete, personal obedience. Okay. This began with Adam, with the covenant of works, and that covenant remains. The standard remains. God is impartial in judging according to that standard, and he is fair in judging according to that standard, because everyone knows his standard. The Jews know the standard because the law of Moses has been given to them, the Old Testament, and they will be judged by that more specific standard. The Gentiles also have the standard because God's law is written on the heart. Everybody knows what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. They just don't know it as clearly as the person who has God's law. And so when Jesus returns, he will judge everyone on the final day of judgment, and no one can say they didn't know. Well, beginning in verse 17, Paul very specifically turns his attention to the Jew. Okay? <clears throat> He's referred to them, of course, prior to this, but now he specifically turns to them. And one of the things that I did last time is I wanted us to spend a few moments defining what a Jew is. Paul's going to do that for us at the end of the chapter. And in fact, he's going to redefine, you might say, what a Jew is. And so, initially, the thought is, of course, a Jew is someone who has been chosen by God and has received a special revelation. We see this with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob especially, and then the, their descendants. There are a few Jew, excuse me, Gentiles who are associated with the Jews in the Old Covenant, but not many. But now, there is this transition. The true Jew is now the believing Jew. The believing Gentile, the one who believes in Jesus. And so if we believe in Christ, we are a true Jew, as Paul defines here. And so these privileges that Paul mentions about the Jew apply to us too, if we trust in Christ. All right, now he lists for us in verses 17 and 18, five of these privileges the first one is being given the name Jew, which is short for Judean. It's kind of a nickname, you might say. Very special name. But now the name we have, of course, is Christian. You could say believing Jew, uh, but Christian, of course, is what we use. And this is a very, very special name we've been given, a follower of Christ. Secondly, he says that we have been given the scriptures. The law of Moses in particular is his focus, but we've been given the scriptures. This is a great great privilege. Not everybody has this. And so we are privileged in this way. And then thirdly, we are privileged to be able to boast in God. There is a wrong kind of boasting, but there is a right kind of boasting too. To boast in God is to say, he has done this for me. I don't deserve any of this, but he has chosen me. He has saved me. He has given eternal life, his word, his son, his spirit, and so forth. So then, fourthly, he says, because we have the scriptures, we know what God wants us to believe and to do. We know his will. 
And fifthly, because we have the scriptures, we can discern between right and wrong, good and evil. Unbelievers can do that to some degree, but believers can do it far better because we have the scriptures. So of these five, the unbeliever, the Gentile, and as Paul describes it here, they don't have these privileges. But Jews did, and now here believing Jews, right, true Christians, true believers, we have these privileges. And it's truly amazing. Okay. So with this a bit more extended review here as we come to these verses, um, <clears throat> let's focus on his point here. We'll return to his broader point next time. Since we've been focusing week after week on how sinful and terrible we are, <laughs> I wanted to pause here and focus on these good things. So, verses 19 and 20. Let me read them again. Verse 19 continues the sentence here, And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth, in the law. Now, Paul really is giving us one more privilege here. We have five in the previous two verses, and yes, they're related, but these are so closely related, we really need to think of them as one, and that is we've been given the privilege to teach. Now, notice how he ends in verse 20 with this final clause modifying everything that he just said. We saw the same thing in verse 18 last time. He ends verse 18 by saying, being instructed out of the law, which that modifies the previous two privileges. Because you're being instructed out of the law, you're able to know God's will, and you're able to discern right and wrong. Well, now, same basic format. Because we have the form of knowledge and the form of truth in the law, we are then able to be a guide, a light, an instructor, a teacher. So he arranges it in the same way uh, as he did in verse 18. And so therefore, let's focus on the end, and then we'll come back to the beginning of verse 19. So first of all, then, the question that comes to, our, uh, to us here, what we have to answer is, what is the form of knowledge and truth? What's he talking about here? Well, let me give you an example that uh, may be helpful for us. God is invisible, right? We cannot see him. We cannot see the spirit of God. We can see the effects of God, but we can't see him. If when we get to heaven, we're not going to see the Holy Spirit. We're not going to see the Father. Maybe we'll see a bright light or something. But Jesus has taken on human form so that we can see God. We can touch God even, you could say. And certainly this was true when Jesus came to earth and we just read about him being arrested and so forth, right? And so it is God, something you cannot see, that now is able to be seen. Well, in a similar way, how do you see knowledge? How do you see truth? It is something you might say that is abstract, something you might say that is talked about. Words and ideas and thoughts do not have form, but they can take on a form. You can put them into words. And so you see then that the point that Paul is saying is the form of knowledge and truth is the scripture. 
okay, to his immediate point, the law of Moses, but even beyond that to all the scriptures. And so the, the law, the Old Testament is the form of God's law, and now that Christ has come, of course, this is, includes the New Testament. And so the unbeliever does not have this form. He cannot hold it. Now, the essence of the law is written on the heart, yes, but they don't have the form of it. And so the Jew here, of course, is his focus. And now for us, the Christian, we have the form of knowledge and the form of truth in the scriptures. And only the Christian now actually has this form because the Jews have rejected Christ. They do not accept the New Testament. They actually do not have the form anymore. They have a part of it, but they don't fully understand it because they don't have all of it. As a brief uh, side point, <laughs> especially when I was studying and preparing for the book of Exodus when I preached through that, one of the commentators I used was a Jew. And it was very helpful. He gave a lot of insight, understanding on the form of knowledge and truth that is found in the book of Exodus. But there were a number of times I'm like, well, obviously he's not a Christian. <laughs> he's not bringing in this point. He's not referring to the New Testament in this way. Uh, so they have some of the form, you might say, but not all of it now. And so we, as God's people, know the truth. We have this form. And, and so therefore, we have more truth than unbelievers, because they do have some. And Christians have more knowledge than the Jew, because we have all the scriptures. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we are better. It's because we have God's word and therefore have God's view of life, his knowledge, his truth. Now, this in and of itself is an amazing privilege, isn't it? And we talked about that, about resting in the law and being instructed out of the law last time. Okay? And you might remember, for those of you who are here, I just can't imagine not having a Bible. I've had one my whole life. I can't imagine living life without God's word. All right, now, <clears throat> let me take a kind of a side trip here, but it's very much related to what we were talking about. And that is, when Paul says things like this, you're like, well, some unbelievers have a Bible. Uh, he just said in verses 14 and following that, that the unbeliever has some knowledge. Even going back to chapter 1, they look outside and they see all these pretty leaves and so forth. They know God exists. They have some knowledge. Okay, that's true. Even today, we could say, as I said a moment ago about the commentator, that Jews have some knowledge. But both things must be held together. On the one hand, the unbeliever knows the truth. On the other hand, the unbeliever doesn't know the truth. On the one hand, the unbeliever has knowledge. It's, it's ingrained in them. On the other hand, they don't have the knowledge. So how do we put this together? Well, many books have been written. <laughs> I've mentioned uh, before, at least on one occasion, that John Frame's book, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, is a very helpful one to try to work through uh, these matters. But let me uh, address it in this way. There are a number of unbelievers that know more than I do. Okay? They, they know more than us on particular things. There are unbelievers who are better at math than me. 
There are unbelievers who are better at sports and know a lot about how to control the body, whatever that sport is, or construction, or law, or politics. But though they may have more knowledge in that sense, they do not have knowledge because they don't understand it from God's perspective. Now, yes, it is true, deep down, the unbeliever knows that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And they know that that is the case because God made it that way. But they ignore that truth. They suppress that truth. And so on the one hand, they have knowledge. On the other hand, they ignore the knowledge and they don't have knowledge. The same could be said that deep down, the unbeliever knows when they get a, a text to join a flash mob and go steal and destroy at some business, they know that's wrong because the Eighth Commandment is written on their hearts. So on the one hand, they know. On the other hand, they suppress it and they don't know. And especially if they don't have a Bible, right? Paul is saying they don't have knowledge. Okay. <clears throat> Furthermore, okay. <clears throat> that knowledge that they have is not only suppressed, but it's not as clear. Okay. They have received general revelation, as we call it. It is God's revelation given to everyone in general, a knowledge of himself, a knowledge of his law. Everybody has it. There are no exceptions whatsoever. But they do not necessarily then have the form of God's word. They don't have special revelation. The Jews had it. The rest of the world didn't. Same for us today. We as Christians, we have special revelation. The rest of the world does not. Okay. <clears throat> and so... Um, general revelation can tell us many things, but it's not going to tell us about salvation in Christ. Special revelation will tell us about that, but also clarify the things that we see in what God has made. Now, another aspect of this is that Scripture does not talk about certain things. You're not going to read in Scripture anything about welding. You're not going to see anything about shooting a gun, though a bow and arrow, uh, you're not going to see anything about car maintenance. You're not going to see anything about canning fruit. Hey, but it does give us ultimate principles of truth and life, which, when understood, makes the Christian more knowledgeable e even than an unbeliever, even if that unbeliever can shoe a horse better than a Christian. Do you see the point here? The unbeliever has some knowledge. They have some skill. They're made in God's image. They have factual knowledge. They have some of that just inherently in them. But when it comes to true knowledge, to wisdom, having God's perspective, when it comes to having his special revelation here in the word, hey, they don't have that. Or they have it just generally. Now let me bring in one more thing here in this context. Hey, <clears throat> You may say, well, I know of unbelievers who have a Bible. We probably all know of someone who has grown up in the church and they heard the truth and they left. And they don't believe and accept these things. Well, let's turn a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because Paul does address this point here. In 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 13, Paul says this, 
These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And so the unbeliever is going to have some knowledge. God made him that way. But he's not going to have this spiritual knowledge because he doesn't have the spirit. He's not going to have the mind of Christ because he doesn't believe in Christ. And so as we come back to Romans 2, Paul already told us this point, didn't he? Back in verse 13, not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. It's not enough just to have a Bible, right? We need to live by it. And so for the unbeliever who does have God's special revelation in their hands, they're not going to understand it unless the Spirit is working in them. Well, this is a rather large topic. And I've talked about it some in chapter 1. I wanted to say a few things here about it now in this way. But let us come back to Paul's point here. And let us focus now, you might say, on ourselves. Paul is saying that the Jews have been given the privilege and the responsibility to teach everyone else what the truth is because nobody else knows the truth, not in the way that we have here, of course. But, as I've said, since the Jews have rejected Jesus, they have lost that privilege. And now it's the believing Jew, the Christian, who is been given this task. And so that is us, if we trust in Jesus. So now let's come to the beginning. Verse 19. He starts by saying, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. <clears throat> the Greek literally says here, you have persuaded yourself. You are confident, persuaded, that you have been given this task and responsibility. Now, as I mentioned last time in verses 17 and 18, Paul is not saying that these things are wrong. This is true. This is true of God's people in the Old Covenant. This is true now for us as believers. It is good and right. We should be persuaded that we know more than the unbeliever. Again, not in some prideful way, but we know more than the unbeliever because we have the form of knowledge in the scriptures. We have the spirit in us to help us. We have this privilege given to us by God. <clears throat> and so we should be confident in this way of this privilege and task. Let's turn a moment here to uh, Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42, we have, uh, likely, <clears throat> Paul has this passage in mind as he writes these words, but he also probably is quoting from some Jewish literature, you might say. Um, but notice what is said here. In Isaiah 42, we have one of the servant songs, and the servant, of course, refers ultimately to Jesus. And so notice then in verses 6 and 7 especially, I, the Lord, have called you, right, the servant, in righteousness. And will hold your hand, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, 
to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Now, the initial point here in application, obviously, is this is referring to Christ. He has been given this responsibility. He fulfilled it, right? We even read some of that in John 18, right? He lost no one. Hey, he kept all who had been given to him, except for the son of perdition. And so Jesus then came and he taught. He was given this privilege to teach to those who were in darkness, including those in Israel, of course, and by extension, the Gentiles. And so we can say then that Jesus is the lampstand. He is the light of the world. John chapter 8. But it is also true that we are lampstands. We too are the light of the world. We are now salt and light, as Jesus said. And so though these words focus ultimately on Christ, that's not what Paul is emphasizing here, is he? He's talking about us as the people of God. We are lampstands. We are the light of the world. We are the ones who are to bring those in darkness to the truth, to teach them. And so with that in mind, then, let's go through these four ways of describing it. And as I said earlier, he's really saying the same thing in every one of them. It's essentially the same. We could maybe debate on how to uh, see the nuanced points he is making. Um, but again, the overall point is, is straightforward. So the first one he says here is that you are persuaded, right? God has set you apart to be a guide to the blind. Obviously, we're not talking about literally blind people here. We're talking about spiritually blind people. God's people are to guide the unbeliever to see the truth. Now, how do we do this? Well, obviously, we begin with witnessing. We begin with evangelism. It is our responsibility, our task, our privilege to go forth and tell other people about Jesus who don't know him. We've talked about this when we went through the book of Acts. We've talked about it in other contexts, like Dale led us here recently with apologetics. It is our responsibility to do this. But this is not the only way we can be a guide to the blind. Think, for example, of being salt and light at the local school board. Say you are on the school board, or maybe you are just attending a meeting, we should help guide them to see that education without God, education without the scriptures, is blindness. It's ignorance. Education is not merely about creating someone with a particular skill, and it certainly is not about brainwashing and so forth that we are seeing in our schools, our government schools especially. Okay. But you see how we can be salt and light. Yes, we can stand up at the school board meeting and say, hey, everybody needs to believe in Jesus. Yes. But we can also say, hey, let's love our neighbor. Let us be salt and light by guiding the discussion and the decisions toward this idea of truth, learning truth, education with God, not without him. Maybe you could go to the local township meeting. Maybe you're on... Uh, the, the township board or something to that effect or whatever, you can help guide the blind 
in those settings too. Okay? Say you're talking about new roads or paving existing roads or, or talking about eminent domain or talking about tax levels or you know, whatever it happens to be. Okay? <clears throat> the unbeliever is going to th be thinking about power, about money, about selfish things. But we can be a guide to the blind and say, no, we are supposed to love our neighbor. Let's love our neighbor when we're talking about tax levels, not just about filling our coffers. Do you see the point here? The point of being a guide to the blind that Christians should be is not only the issue of evangelism. It extends in these other ways, too. And so we could say we're using God's law in the civil realm, right? The so-called second use of the law. All right, now secondly then, he says that we are to be a light to those who are in darkness. Uh, in my view, I think these first two, he's basically saying the same thing. Some people want to find a distinction and so on. But obviously, unbelievers are in the dark. And so let's shine the light. Again, let's begin with the gospel. Shine the light of the gospel. Point them to Jesus, who is the light of the world. But we can also shine the light to those who profess faith, but are in darkness. Okay? The woke gospel is not light. False teaching, works salvation, is not light. We can go to other churches, other Christians, who say they are Christians, but they're actually in darkness. Let's shine the light of the true gospel. We can talk about this also in our society. We live in a society where big government and socialism is now the norm. But that's darkness. Shine the light and show them that that is the case. The Eighth Commandment forbids the government taking from this person and giving it to somebody else. Limited government is a biblical concept. Let's shine the light to those who are in darkness here in this way. Maybe you can think of a, someone that you work with or a neighbor or something to that effect. And uh, they have some aging parents. And all they're interested in doing is just putting them in a nursing home and not really caring for them at all. They are in darkness, aren't they? Let's shine the light. Let's shine the light of the fifth commandment. And remember, they have that light in them. They already know they should be caring for their aging parents. Bring out biblical commands that say that we should shine the light for them to see. Another example, we live in a culture, of course, that says that evolution explains everything. Gradualism, we've evolved from some simple cell way back when and so forth. This is a dark teaching. They are in darkness. Hey, there's a show on that uh, I've watched some, you know, uh, how to explain the universe. How does the universe work? And they come at it from this perspective. And some of it, oh, that, that sounds all right. Others, I'm like, you're just totally out to lunch. This makes no sense. The light is God has made everything. Hey. God is our creator, the creation and the flood and so on and so forth. All these things are light. Shine this light when you are in your biology class 
at college or high school or whatever it happens to be. Do you see the point? God gave the Jews, and now by extension, Christians, this task, this privilege, this responsibility. Again, Paul's not condemning them for this. He is saying they, they have been given this. And so we, not just me as a pastor, not just your elders, but all of us have been given the task to be a guide, to be a light to those who are blind and in darkness. And it begins with the gospel, but there are so many other factors that um, we can talk about here too. So let's talk then about the third one. And the third one now is into verse 20, an instructor of the foolish. Again, some people would say that this is really saying the exact same thing as the first two. Others would see a distinction. Uh, if we do see a distinction here, uh, I think Paul might then be emphasizing those who specifically say there is no God. The fool in the scripture is maybe seen most clearly in Psalm 14. Right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it may be that that's what Paul is emphasizing here. So uh, if that's the case, and certainly we can make application in this way, um, there are some people, obviously, who by conviction say there is no God. They are atheists or maybe an agnostic. There are other people who aren't by conviction an atheist, but by behavior are atheists. We call them practical atheists. They may say they believe in God. They may even say they're a Christian, but they're living as if God does not exist, or at least that God does not impact their daily living. Or even the next step, God impacts this part of my life when I go to church, but he doesn't impact this part of my life when I go to work or something to that effect. All of those kinds of approaches are a form of atheism, and that is foolishness. Philosophers try to reason out life's questions without God. Believers in false gods who ignore the truth of the scripture and general revelation, they are being foolish. The Jew who does not believe in Jesus is being foolish, really. The materialist who thinks that life is all there is, is foolish. The average person who goes to work, comes home and has a beer and watches the football game, the average person who goes to school and, and uh, joins a fraternity or sorority and goes to big football games and all this sort of thing, or the, or the person who plays video games, escapes in a book, numbly watches TV or their smartphone, those who are duped by the media and social media. Okay. If God does not impact any of these things in their lives, if they're not trying to live for him, they're just being a bunch of fools. Let's instruct them. Let's shine the light. Let's guide them. Let's be a lampstand, teaching them the truth from the scriptures. Teach them that you cannot understand God with the human mind only. Teach them that there are actually no other gods. There is the one true and living God. Speak to the Jew and say, no, Jesus does fulfill all of these promises in the scriptures. Show the materialists that there is far more than just this life. Hey, the person who goes to work and has a beer after work, and that's their life day in and day out, and we just can't wait to get through hump day and finally get to the weekend. You know, I, there's far more to life than that. Instruct them. 
This is our job as Christians. And then lastly here, he says, a teacher of babes. Now, most everybody agrees that Paul does have something different in mind here, though, again, obviously it's all related. And so the babe here then probably, uh, in particular, is referring to the young Jew, or at least the young in faith Jew. And so when we think of our children, hey, we catechize them. We have Sunday school. We have Bible school. There are other things, of course, that we do. We are to teach our babes, teach our children the things of God. This is the privilege and responsibility we have been given. <clears throat> Don't let the government school do it in your place. Don't even let the Christian school do it in your place. Work with the Christian school. Okay? But, right, we have the form of truth. We have knowledge right here. Teach your children this way. Teach your grandchildren. Teach your nieces and nephews the things of God. But Paul probably also has in mind the young in faith. And so in that day, they called them proselytes, the Gentile who became a Jew, accepted the things of God and so forth. Uh, today, we might call it the new members class or something like that, right? Those who are young in the faith, teach them the things of God. Okay? And because we live in a culture that is increasingly uh, ignorant in terms of the things of the scriptures, Hey, you have to start at the beginning. You can't presume knowledge like maybe we could have to some degree a century ago or something like that. Now, I do think we can probably expand this thought in this way. Um, maybe there are some people at work or your neighbors who have questions about God. Hey, they haven't professed faith yet. They're not a babe yet, but they're inquiring. They're seeking, we might say. Hey, we can lead a Bible study or just, you know, talk with them about these things. Hey, maybe we can even join a chat online to teach these seekers. I don't think that's the best format, but yeah, we can do that. Write children's books explaining the truths of God's word. Work at a daycare. Babysit. Teach them the truth. There's a variety of things that we can do. Once again, Paul is not saying that this is wrong. Okay, again, if, if you look at what he says next, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? He's going uh, to challenge us in this. He's going to point out our sin. But these privileges are not sin. They're not sinful. If we don't live out the task, if we take for, uh, for granted these things, well, yeah, that's sinful. But God gave us these privileges. To the Jew initially, now to the Christian. We have the truth. Be salt and light. Witness. Begin at home. Here in the church. Go beyond into the culture. Don't just witness to, you're a sinner, you need Jesus. But how does God's word impact every part of our life, too? That's just as, as significant. The culture, of course, doesn't want it. As sinners, we don't want to hear it. We want to suppress the truth. People will push back. They may even persecute. But keep at it. Hey, some do want it. God has his people out there. Hey, God has given us our own children, people here in the church, and so forth. Let's teach. Let me end with something that I've uh, 
made mention of before, I don't recall the last time I did, but uh, think about your spheres of influence. Every one of us has one. And for some of us, our sphere of influence is rather large. For others, maybe not so much. But probably every one of us in here comes into contact with, what, a couple dozen, maybe 150 people on a regular basis throughout the week? Let's just give a round number, you know. Say we influence 10 people in our lives throughout the week. Hey, those in the house, those outside of the house, let's just take a nice easy number, you know. You multiply that out, now we're talking about hundreds. If you expand it to think of maybe we uh, have influence with 100 people, hey, including the cashier at County Market, that maybe you see once a week or every two weeks or something. It's not as much influence, but there's still some influence there. Okay. Well, now we're talking about thousands of people that our little church can influence, can teach, can lead to be a guide and a teacher and, and light and so forth. There are so many ways that we can instruct others in the truth. Obviously, begin at home, but how can we go beyond that? We've been given this task. We've been given this privilege. So, as I've said a few times now, <clears throat> in one sense, I'm abstracting these ideas from Paul's argument. But what he is saying here is true. And I wanted us to dwell on that because, in some ways, we've been beaten down by how sinful we are <laughs> here for the last several weeks. But we'll return to his overall point, Lord willing, next time. And so may God help us to obey him in this way. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we are thankful that you have given us your word, this form of knowledge and truth. We are thankful, Lord, that you have not merely given us your revelation and, and the things that we see that you've made and, uh, in our hearts, but you have given us your word, all of it, in the Old and the New Testament. We are so thankful and grateful for this, Lord. May we then know it. May we understand it and live by it. And may we then also uh, heed um, this call to responsibility, this task to be a lampstand, to be salt and light, to be teachers to those around us. Strengthen us, Lord. Enable us. We thank you most of all, of course, that you are light, that Jesus is the light of the world. And through him, you have reconciled us to yourself so that we can no longer be in darkness and blindness and fools and, and so on, but can have the light of truth, the light of salvation, the light of um, your grace to us through Christ, granting us eternal life. We are thankful, Lord, that you have given us your spirit to be able to discern these things. So, Lord, we pray that you would then give us a better understanding of the mind of Christ and that we would live in ways that honor you in all things. And so we pray all of this then through Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.